Welcome to Wild Trekker. I'm George Toombs here in Montreal, and this is the 30th episode. Wild Trekker is a series of podcasts, a writer's notebook, audio chapters from ongoing works, soundscapes, adventures, interviews with fascinating people, reflections, original radio plays, reportage, stories behind stories, jam sessions, and more. Wild Trekker is a fluid kind of sound art. I hope you enjoy it. This is the second podcast in a series of seven I'm devoting to the history of the human machine. In William Harvey, we find a new variation on the theme of the human machine, the heart as a mechanical device. We also find a controversy. Harvey is one of the leading physicians of England during the early 17th century, and he establishes the true nature of the circulation of the blood and the operation of the heart as a pump within the body. He also offers demonstrative proof in the form of experimentation and quantitative methods. In so doing, Harvey has been widely credited with having set the early modern scientific revolution in motion, although exactly how he does that and even whether he does that, is in dispute. Does Harvey establish the scientific basis of modern biology, basing himself on the deduction of general laws on the basis of observation of natural phenomena, correlated with the demonstration of the effect produced by trial and experiment? Is Harvey instead a proto-positivist, bewildered by the extent of ignorance about anatomy in his day, and therefore pessimistic about humanity's capacity to truly know? Is he someone, in short, who prefers to put all his energies into specific hypothesis and experiment as a result? Or is Harvey instead a pioneer who elaborates a mechanical system of the body and who destroys, in a single blow, the a priori supposition that it is in principle impossible to describe organic processes in mechanical terms? Another interpretation sees him as a royalist, ever loyal to his two kings, James I and Charles I, 
and he seeks to establish the symbolic sovereignty of the heart within the human body. Does Harvey cautiously negotiate instead with both royalists and parliamentarians during the turmoil of the late 1640s in order to protect his personal and professional interests? Is Harvey a soft-spoken Protestant rationalist who doesn't believe in numerous superstitions of his time, such as witchcraft, quackery, and hermeticism? Does Harvey develop a mechanistic view of the body as a substitute for existing hermetic explanations, such as the microcosm myth? Well, another interpretation is that Copernicus and Vesalius have actually already overthrown the microcosm myth. Is Harvey, on the contrary, sincere in his evocation of the microcosm, since he resorts to the rhetoric of demonic magic when he could find no straightforward way of explaining organic phenomena? If Harvey promotes experimentation and quantitative methods, does he unconsciously imbibe the Galilean method of measurement in astronomy when he's a student of anatomy at Padua? Or is Harvey applying to anatomy that very English method of empirical investigation established by William Gilbert, as well as Sir Francis Bacon, to whom he was personal physician? Or does Harvey develop an English technological metaphor for the human heart based on pumps used in firefighting in London in his day? I've just reduced this astonishing range of scholarly opinions to a series of questions, partly to tease you, and mainly as a way to suggest that the same historical evidence can be mustered, selected, and presented to support a wide variety of views. Much scholarship about Harvey is based on speculative inferences and wishful thinking. Much of it contrasts organic with mechanical explanations, seeks to affirm Harvey's lead role in the early modern scientific revolution, underscores the English character of his work, and downplays any influence of Hermeticism on his work. Harvey, in my opinion, is actually subject to multiple influences. Moreover, he's a transitional figure, and how could it have been otherwise, since he's a bridge between old and new? The metaphor of the human machine has multiple roots in antiquity and Renaissance Italy, and Harvey overtly refers to many of these roots in his writings. He's by no means the first anatomist to draw on this mechanical metaphor, in fact, he does so much in the same way as Leonardo da Vinci and Vesalius have done before him. One vector of influence on Harvey is Padua itself, the northern Italian university that has been home to Copernicus, Vesalius, Fabricius, Gilbert, and Galileo. Harvey may well acquire the habit of seeing the body as a series of mechanisms at Padua, where conservative Aristotelian and Galenic medical systems highlighting the instrumentality of the body are taught alongside Vitruvius and some Neoplatonism in a medical curriculum that includes study of astronomy. 
Moreover, I need to draw a distinction between Harvey's ocular observations and dissections, which provide him with the raw material, as it were, of anatomy, and Harvey's ideas and values, which help him to interpret and organize that raw material in due course by means of mechanical metaphors. How plausible is the idea that Harvey's Paduan years, that is from 1600 to 1602, are decisive in the development of his mechanical metaphor for the heart. There's some evidence to this effect since Harvey's first mention of the mechanical operations of the heart refers explicitly to Fabricius. But then Padua is often described as the bastion of Aristotelianism, which does not easily lend itself to mechanistic anatomy. Besides, many of Harvey's English contemporaries resort to mechanical metaphors of one kind or other. There have been highly nationalistic scholarly articles published in the United Kingdom suggesting that Harvey's mechanical metaphors are based on English rather than Italian technology. Padua is actually the central place where original investigations are being undertaken at this time that transform knowledge, lead to the development of the scientific revolution, and give new prestige to the metaphor of the human machine. Like Leonardo da Vinci and Andreas Vesalius, William Harvey studies anatomy in late Renaissance Italy, where it's common practice to draw on mechanical metaphors and to compare the system of the human body, that is, the microcosm, to the system of the world, the macrocosm, and to describe individual organs by means of technological metaphors. Harvey is an anatomist who philosophizes a little. Unlike his contemporary and occasional critic, René Descartes, who is a philosopher who anatomizes a little. Harvey's not ready for the abstract mechanistic philosophy of Descartes, preferring to maintain a modified Aristotelian outlook. In fact, Harvey remains vitalist in his biological philosophy and develops a theory of the heart as a mechanical device in continuity with the ancient traditions I just mentioned. Well, William Harvey was born in 1578 in Folkestone, Kent. His father, and subsequently his five brothers, were prosperous merchants trading in the Levant. After studying at King's School, next to Canterbury Cathedral, Harvey studied at Gonville and Keyes College, Cambridge, graduating with a BA in 1597. He then went to the University of Padua, one of Europe's greatest centers of learning during the Renaissance, for a two-and-a-half-year course. According to biographer Sir Geoffrey Keynes, Padua's reputation steadily rose until it took its independent place as Italy's foremost university and school of medicine. Padua profited also by its proximity to the Republic of Venice, being officially adopted as its university quarter. While the cosmopolitanism of medieval days was passing away elsewhere, Padua's broad-minded outlook proved particularly attractive to students from England and other Protestant countries. Artists, scientists, and liberal-minded people 
came to work in Padua in an atmosphere of civil and academic freedom, such as could be found hardly anywhere outside the domains of Venice. English merchants trading with the Levant would have had frequent contacts in Venice itself, which maintained, throughout the Renaissance, a far-flung commercial empire with castles and trading posts throughout the eastern Mediterranean. In Padua, Harvey's studies with Hieronymus Fabricius Aquapendente, well, I call him Fabricius, under whose influence he first begins to consider the functions of the beating heart and the properties of blood flowing through it. The heart is variously interpreted during the Renaissance. On a metaphorical level, the heart has been deemed, since the time of Aristotle, to be the sovereign and therefore the most important organ of the body. In addition, Galen has conceptualized the movement of the blood in the heart as leaving by the arteries and returning by the veins in an ebb and flow fashion. The Galenic model is to remain dominant for some 1400 years until it comes under fire during the Renaissance. Harvey is not a disembodied rationalist studying anatomy in the abstract. He's also a man of his times. Harvey is admitted to the College of Physicians in 1603. He practices in London at St. Bartholomew's Hospital in 1609. He's involved in the resolution of many professional conflicts between physicians and both barber surgeons and apothecaries and he's made physician extraordinary to King James I, likely in 1618. During the first two decades of the century, he busily develops some of the ideas he's acquired in Padua about the role of observation, experiment, and measurement in anatomy, as well as the circulation of the blood, at least in a limited sense. But he does this against the social and political backdrop of serving a British king fascinated if not obsessed by demonology, of fighting plague in Cambridge and London with the inadequate medical means of the time, he plays the role of courtier, promoting a highly specialized approach to natural philosophy at a time when William Gilbert and Sir Francis Bacon are putting the early modern enterprise of science on the national political agenda. He investigates malpractice and promotes standards in the face of sharply conflicting views on diagnostics and therapeutics in a highly disorganized medical field rife with professional competition among surgeons, obstetricians, and apothecaries, as well as totally unregulated faith healers and other quacks. On the death of James I in 1625, Harvey's appointed physician to Charles I, with whom he develops a close friendship, as is shown by Charles allowing him to do experiments on deer in the royal park, and they're traveling together a number of times. Harvey's been frustrated by the poor quality of his medical studies at Cambridge. He's exposed at Padua to stimulating ideas about the instrumentality and organic functions of the body, as well as some anticipations of the circular motion of blood through the heart. In addition to studying the Fabrica of Vesalius, Harvey is exposed to the works of Realdus Columbus of Cremona, 
the assistant to Vesalius, who advances the idea of pulmonary circulation, something that's subsequently demonstrated by his student, Andreas Cesalpinus. Harvey is not satisfied by the description of the heart's system of valves offered by his Paduan professor Fabricius Aquapendente. Harvey first becomes interested in the value of comparative anatomy in Padua, and he devotes himself to dissections of everything from human cadavers to deer, reptiles, earthworms, and insects. Although parliamentary forces destroy Harvey's scientific papers during the Civil War, there are records of some of his medical consultations which show his humanity, his sympathetic and sometimes bemused understanding of psychology, and also his concern for the welfare of his patients. Harvey writes five primary works during his lifetime, Lectures on the Whole of Anatomy, The Motion of the Heart, published in 1628, and finally the first and second Disquisitions on the Circulation of the Blood, addressed to John Riolan, published in 1649, and Anatomical Exercises on the Generation of Animals and on Animal Generation, published in 1651. In the anatomical lectures given before the College of Physicians, Harvey notes, and I quote, Anatomy is that branch of learning which teaches the uses and actions of the parts of the body by ocular inspection and by dissection. The study of anatomy falls into five main divisions, the general account of each part, its use, action, and usefulness for what, the observation of rare things and things which occur in disease, discussion of the problems arising from the opinions of the authorities, manual skill or dexterity in dissection, and the preparation of the embalmed body. Although Harvey emphasizes the role of ocular inspection and dissection, he expresses the teleological views of Aristotle and Galen in conventional terms. This frequent mention in his works of the use, function, instrumentality, and necessity of different bodily organs. Indeed, another division of the parts of anatomy therefore classifies them philosophically and medically according to the end for which they are designed. There's no part which in some way or other is not fashioned for some instrumental purpose. Then Harvey goes on to say, citing St. Augustine, that from their usefulness and preeminence, the parts may be classified as simply necessary or indispensable or beneficial or for protection or for ornament. Then comes the question of how to interpret the findings of ocular inspection and dissection. Here, Harvey departs from Aristotle a moment to advise his students to review your own and other people's observations in order to consider carefully your own opinion or, in the strictest form, deal with other animals according to the rule of Socrates, where it is fairer written. He returns to promote the Socratic method concerning argument from analogy in discussing the lower belly. The word analogy here cited is not sufficient grounds for us to assume that Harvey uses the analogy 
or metaphor of the machine because of Socrates. He then summarizes the purposes of the study of anatomy. It is to establish the situation or delimitation of the body, the shape of the parts, their proportion, symmetry, and beauty. These ideas are clearly a reference back to the Vitruvian ideal, and indeed Vitruvius is twice cited by Harvey, as well as the amount, the movement, both in terms of augmentation and diminution, and in accordance with diseases, with habit, and with age, and finally, the division into parts of the body. Moreover, anatomy should establish the actions of the body. In writing of the divisions of the body, Harvey approvingly cites the Aristotelian and Galenic notion of a hierarchy of bodily organs. It's worth noting some of the non-mechanical metaphorical descriptions as they apply to the heart. The diaphragm serves as a partition between the bellies, quote, to protect the place of the heart, its chamber from the noisome, sooty, crude vapors which arise steaming from the concoction in the kitchen and from the excrements, to protect the heart also from being oppressed by the distension of the stomach, womb, and colon by food, wind, etc., and by the fomentation of humors when there is distension below. And in man it serves as an apron to support the heart and lungs when the body is erect." Unquote. These non-mechanical metaphors, while original, serve to show the value of metaphorical description in Harvey's early anatomy. Harvey's discussion of the heart draws on the traditional views of Aristotle and Galen, the more contemporary researches of Italian anatomists, and some comparative anatomy. Then, demonstrating to his audience on an animal with its thorax gaping wide open, Harvey states, and I quote, but that the heart drives out and sends forth the blood in the movement of erecting is evident from these things which can be observed, particularly with regard to the oracles, also from the experiment of the ligature when the parts become very cold, next from the position of the valves. When the arteries are wounded, the blood spurts out, the artery has a thicker coat, second from the color for the heart is whiter and more glistening in erection, as can be seen in frogs and fish, etc. Third, from a wound in their walls, the blood spurts out alike in the ventricles, the arteries, and the pulmonary artery. Fourth, the ventricles of the heart answer the movement of the oracles, so that the heart itself drives out the blood which has just been driven into it. End of quote. This passage, by the way, is totally devoid of any mechanical metaphors. The anatomy theater is a place for direct observation and demonstration, not for a literary explanation of the workings of the heart and circulation of the blood, something that will soon require the liberal use of mechanical metaphors. Harvey breaks with Aristotle, however, in affirming that the brain, not the heart, is the center of sensation, and he does so in a metaphorical way. He writes, the brain is set in the topmost part of the body, which serves as the safest tower with, as its defenses, hair, skin, etc. 
as nature made no part more greatly defended, so is it deemed the prince of all the parts, just as in some small state the same man is judge, king, and counsellor, while in larger states these offices are separate. So it is in animals and their parts. Politicians, indeed, take many analogies from our medical art. Well, Harvey then describes the rational soul, whose powers are located in the brain, implicitly supporting the age-old value according to which human beings are in God's image and likeness. He writes, The utility of the brain lies not only in its power to comprehend the different kinds of sensation brought to it, but also to create from these comprehended concepts, this is fantasy, and to recall those which are no longer present, and this is memory. With this faculty he joins or separates concepts, which he affirms or denies. He conceives, comprehends, and defines. By affirmation and denial he demonstrates his ratiocination. This is in the highest degree the peculiar property of the rational soul. Harvey is best known for a work published in 1628, The Motion of the Heart. This work describes an important medical discovery of the 17th century, namely that a finite amount of blood circulates on a continuous basis throughout the body of humans and other animals. The work is significant for several reasons. It reflects the mature attitude of an anatomist and comparative anatomist who's taken the time to digest ocular observations and dissections, at some remove from the anatomy theatre itself. The book bears witness to Harvey's advocacy of experimentation in natural philosophy, which we call science. And this work shows the value of quantitative methods. Harvey's work doesn't mark a radical break with the speculative legacy of Hippocrates with his four humors, or with Aristotle. On the contrary, Harvey's fearful of breaking with authority, since he knows this will force personal and professional sacrifices. Nevertheless, this work marks an important stage in the development of a new way of looking at things. Harvey certainly claims to have discovered the circulation of the blood, a claim made by several other natural philosophers. The main line of argument is as follows. Harvey observes that the action of the heart is like that of any other muscle. In cold-blooded animals, the ventricles become paler in color when they contract and darker when they expand. The apex of the heart strikes the chest wall during contraction. The contraction of the heart and the contact of its apex with the chest wall are simultaneous with the expansion of the arteries, as felt at the pulse. The contraction of the heart is thus the probable cause of the expansion of the artery. Moreover, Harvey notes in a series of experiments, the oracles are shown to have somewhat similar relations to the ventricles as the ventricles have to the arteries. The same blood that's driven into the ventricle by the contraction of the oracle is subsequently driven into the arteries by the contraction of the ventricles. Harvey insists that the flow of blood is not only in one direction, but moves continuously. It can only be from the veins that all this blood must come, and it is then sent out continuously 
by the aorta. The motion of the blood is indeed circular. Harvey's methods in arriving at these conclusions should be noted. He criticizes Galen and Renaissance natural philosophers for having developed their views of the human body in the abstract without constant reference to the fabric of nature. He's not only studied a wide range of contemporary Italian works on anatomy, he's also performed a wide range of dissections. He then studies the action of the heart and the blood in living animals, whether fishes, frogs, snakes, pigs, or dogs. After showing that the mechanism of the valves and the veins enables the blood to flow to the heart, he demonstrates that ligatures in the human arm can block blood flow in arteries and in veins. On this basis, he concludes that the blood follows a circular movement throughout the body. Well, this is Harvey's argument, as many modern scholars would like to see it. The argument, as I've just stated it, seems to deliver a consistent and clear message about the specialized function of one bodily organ. It's been cleaned of any ambiguous references to Hermetic philosophy or Renaissance Italian anatomists. It seems original and groundbreaking enough to be considered a new paradigm, laying the foundations of a new science. But wait a second. Harvey is not a specialist dealing in the abstract in ways that would have much appeal to 20th and 21st century observers. No, he's a product of his own age. Renaissance humanism is highly eclectic, and this is what accounts for the apparent paradox of inconsistencies in Harvey's highly metaphorical and metaphysical discourse, which may be grounded in Aristotle colored by some Neoplatonism. I would say that it's not a valid historical exercise to separate what one likes in Harvey's theory from what one dislikes four centuries after the fact. It's not appropriate to decontextualize Harvey to rip him away from his own life and times. It's true that he internalizes the human machine and uses mechanical metaphors in a highly dynamic fashion where Vesalius has alluded to them more passively. But Harvey doesn't simply state that the human being is a machine. He only arrives at the idea that the heart has machine-like functions because this idea can be integrated into his belief system, according to which God is the creator of the world, man is in God's image and likeness, Man, or the human if you prefer, is a microcosm, and ultimately the circular movement of blood throughout the body denotes a perfected symmetry, which is also part of God's design. So I don't think these beliefs of Harvey's can be reduced to mere empty rhetorical devices. He repeats them often in many different contexts, and I would say they serve as the underlying fabric of Harvey's theory of causation.
In animal generation, for example, Harvey praises God for his role in creation and generation. He also associates the sovereignty of God and the son of creation, the macrocosm, with the sovereignty or microcosm of his absolute monarch, Charles I. In the opening sentences of the motion of the heart, which Harvey dedicates to his friend, the most illustrious and indomitable Prince Charles, King of Great Britain, France, and Ireland, defender of the faith, he writes that the heart of animals is the foundation of their life, the sovereign of everything within them, the son of their microcosm, that upon which all growth depends, from which all power proceeds. The king, in like manner, is the foundation of his kingdom, the sun of the world around him, the heart of the republic, the fountain whence all power, all grace doth flow. What I've here written of the motions of the heart, Harvey goes on to say, I'm more emboldened to present to your majesty according to the custom of the present age, because almost all things human are done after human examples, and many things in a king are after the pattern of the heart. The knowledge of the heart, therefore, will not be useless to a prince, as embracing a kind of divine example of his functions, and it has still been usual with men to compare small things with great. Here, at all events, best of princes, placed as you are on the pinnacle of human affairs, you may at once contemplate the prime mover in the body of man and the emblem of your own sovereign power. Wow, what a passage. I find it apparent from the concluding passages of Animal Generation that Harvey has developed a schema of sun, blood, and man, according to which the sun is the macrocosm, Blood is a vital substance containing divine faculties issuing from the sun and created by the great workman, or God, while man is the microcosm. Harvey notes, Since the blood acts then with the forces superior to the forces of the elements and exerts its influence through these forces or virtues and is the instrument of the great workman, no one can ever sufficiently extol its admirable its divine faculties. In the first place, and especially, it's possessed by a soul, which is not only vegetative, but sensitive and motive also. It penetrates everywhere, and is ubiquitous. Abstracted, the soul or the life too is gone, so that the blood does not seem to differ in any respect from the soul or the life itself, that is, the anima, at all events it's to be regarded as the substance whose act is the soul or the life. According to Harvey, God has designed and created the macrocosm of heaven and earth. He has designed and created the microcosm of the human being in his own image and likeness. Blood contains man's soul in the image and likeness of God. It's only natural that Harvey should then explain the mechanical operations of blood moving through the body. This form of explanation is nothing less than a departure from Harvey's much heralded Aristotelianism and it's an incursion into Hermeticism. In a highly significant passage, 
Harvey notes that systematic application to vivid sections helps persuade him of the mechanical motion of the heart. He writes, the motion of the heart is as follows, two motions, one of the ventricles, another of the oracles take place consecutively, but in such a manner that there's a kind of harmony or rhythm preserved between them, the two concurring in such wise that but one motion is apparent, especially in the warmer-blooded animals, in which the movements in question are rapid. But then Harvey makes a highly important statement. Nor is this for any other reason than it is in a piece of machinery in which, though one wheel gives motion to another, yet all the wheels seem to move simultaneously, or in that mechanical contrivance which is adapted to firearms, where the trigger being touched, down comes the flint, strikes against the steel, elicits a spark, which, falling among the powder it is ignited, upon which the flame extends, enters the barrel, causes the explosion, propels the ball, and the mark is attained. More important than the mechanical details in Harvey, the various actions of wheels and triggers, is that his schema of sun-blood man leads him to develop a mechanical metaphor for a specific bodily operation which helps him to explain the dynamic process of the circulation of the blood. In chapter 8 of The Motion of the Heart, after a stirring evocation of Aristotle, Harvey reaffirms that, and I quote, the heart, consequently, is the beginning of life, the sun of the microcosm, even as the sun, in his turn, might well be designated the heart of the world. For it's the heart by whose virtue and pulse the blood is moved, perfected, made apt to nourish, and is preserved from corruption and coagulation. The heart is the household divinity, which, discharging its function, nourishes, cherishes, quickens the whole body, and is indeed the fountain of life, the source of all action. Harvey appreciates the microcosm. His observation of the circular motion of blood is at least an implicit reference once more to the microcosm, since it corresponds to the circular motions of the macrocosm. But this is also a reference to Aristotle. In chapter 8 of The Motion of the Heart, for example, he states that he has long bethought himself and revolved in his mind what quantity of blood passes through the heart from the veins to the arteries. I began, he writes, to think whether there might not be a motion, as it were, in a circle. Now this I afterwards found to be true, and I finally saw that the blood, forced by the action of the left ventricle into the arteries, was distributed to the body at large, and its several parts, in the same manner as it sent through the lungs, impelled by the right ventricle into the pulmonary artery, and that it then passed through the veins and along the vena cava, and so round to the left ventricle, in the manner already indicated. Likewise, in animal generation, Harvey returns to the circular model of Aristotle, quoting from Aristotle's work on generation and corruption. In many different passages of his works, Harvey writes that man is a microcosm. In the motion of the heart, for example, 
Harvey makes periodic references to the microcosm. He advocates reliance on dissection rather than on non-empirical medical traditions from antiquity. He affirms that dissection has moreover persuaded him that the heart operates like various machines, and he accurately describes the role of the heart in the circulation of blood throughout the body, making an implicit link, as Aristotle did before him, with the circular movement of the sun. The demonstration proper of the motion of the heart begins with chapter 1, in which Harvey states his motives for writing. He says, When I first gave my mind to vivisections as a means of discovering the motions and uses of the heart, and sought to discover these from actual inspection and not from the writings of others, I found the task so truly arduous, so full of difficulties, that I was almost tempted to think, with Fracastorius, that the motion of the heart was only to be comprehended by God. Then, in the introduction, Harvey presents the truth as a mystery, even as a labyrinth, from which he needs to extricate himself and escape. It's noteworthy that he speaks of truth at all. Harvey labors for many years to extricate himself from the labyrinth of incomprehension, to escape from uncertainty about the true motions of the heart. He means by this that it's terribly difficult for him to identify, to conceptualize, to capture the circulation of the blood and the motions of the heart. The mechanical metaphor may not lead him on to discovery, but it's an indispensable rhetorical tool in helping him to put together and articulate a theory and then to communicate that discovery to others. In other words, the metaphor is positioned in between the raw observation and the later refined theory. It opens Harvey's eyes onto what is evidently a new reality. Harvey thus not only describes the human body by means of dissection, observation, and experimentation. Actually, Harvey draws together various different metaphors. The microcosm, Aristotle's ideal of circular movement, and early modern mechanistic symbols such as the fountain, the trigger of a gun, and various mechanical contrivances. In so doing, Harvey persuades himself of the circular motion of the blood. One of his most important and unexpected contributions is to have provided in the mechanical action of the heart a graphic image for the later philosophie mécanique or mechanistic philosophy, which in turn helps to transform natural philosophy into modern science. hope you enjoyed the way we've traveled together through the labyrinth of incomprehension and have followed some of Harvey's most amazing discoveries about the mechanism of the human heart. We're going to continue next time with a podcast in the seven-part series on the human machine with René Descartes. If you would like to know more about my ongoing creative works from books, translations, films, and blogs to Wild Trekker, check out my author's website at www.evidencia.net. Evidencia is the Latin word for evidence, as in scientific evidence. It's a word that came increasingly into use 
during the early modern scientific revolution, of which William Harvey was such a great part. The opening theme at the beginning of each Wild Tracker podcast is sung by Marie Frenette, with me accompanying her on the piano. Now here's Marie Frenette singing the closing theme of Wild Tracker, accompanied by Pascal Desmeaux on the guitar. Let's get together soon. This Wild Trekker episode is copyright 2021, George Toombs. All rights reserved. <laughs>